0: You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Of Peter, and uh, if you're using one of the church Bibles, it is on the same page it was this morning, um, and that may be page one thousand two hundred and 17, depending on which particular variety of the church Bible that you happen to have picked up. And we're going to read the first 12 verses. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be ye to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. I learned many years ago that I should never allow my wife to pack my case whenever I went on a trip. And those of you who have done any traveling and have allowed your wife to do that uh, quickly realize that when you come to put everything back into the case that she put into the case, it isn't humanly possible, or at least it isn't masculinely possible for most of us to get all those things back into the suitcase. And there are some passages in the New Testament that strike me just exactly in that way. They're relatively compact, Uh, Ephesians chapter 1 verses 1 through 14 is one of those passages. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 1 through 12 is another one of those passages that once you start bringing out everything that's in the passage, you wonder how it is that Peter managed to get it all into simply 12 verses. And so this evening we will just have to see uh, how much We can get out of it uh, without uh, straining ourselves to the point where we realize that we can neither get it back into the passage nor retain it in our heads. Because even as I think I read this passage, you would realize there are all kinds of subtle, complex statements in which Peter is taking an idea and then he's unpacking it. Uh, It's almost like peeling an onion, that the more he says, the more he finds there is to say about any of the topics in these verses. But we began to introduce ourselves this morning to this marvelous first letter of the Apostle Peter. And I was saying, uh, essentially, that Peter is writing to Christians who are just beginning to experience suffering, persecution, opposition of various kinds. And until around this time, the Christian faith was shadowed by the Jewish faith. And most outsiders, you would see this in the Acts of the Apostles, most outsiders tended to associate Christianity and Judaism, Christians and Jews, almost as though Christians were a new Jewish denomination. After all, when the Apostle Paul went throughout the Roman Empire, the first port of call was always in the synagogue to preach to the Jews that their Scriptures had been fulfilled and their Messiah had come. And so, if you saw there was some kind of disagreement or hostility, and you were a Roman citizen, you you might have been likely to say the kind of things that non-Christians sometimes say about the Christian church today, shrug their shoulders and say, why should we believe what they say about reconciliation with God when they're always falling out with one another? But by the time Peter is writing, that situation is beginning to change fairly dramatically, and the Christian faith is no longer what is called a religio licita, a religion that was permitted by the state, and as a result, when Christians openly profess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that is read as a statement that stands in antithesis to the convictions of the state. Just as we were hinting this morning, the same in many places has become true in the United Kingdom today and in many other places in the Western world. To emphasize the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ militates in the eyes of many of our leaders, militates against the grand vision of a pluralistic society. In a pluralistic society where tolerance reigns, one of the things that has been characteristic ever since the days of Christ and the apostles is that the one thing that will not be tolerated is the Christian's claim to the absolute lordship of Jesus Christ, and to the fact that he alone is the way to the Father. That's the reason why, if you were to do a kind of little word study of the text of the New Testament, you would discover something very interesting. That in this one letter, the Apostle Peter uses the verb to suffer Just in these five chapters, he uses the verb to suffer more than the Apostle Paul does in all of his letters. Now, I need to qualify that by saying that Paul tends to speak about pressure and affliction. But Peter uses a very common or garden term for suffering, and there is no letter in the New Testament that more focuses on, on this whole principle that I assume Simon Peter learned from the lips of Jesus. Blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake because yours is the kingdom of God. Harry Melia was telling me at the end of the service today. He said, guess what is the most loved New Testament letter among Iranian Christians. Well, in the context, it wasn't overly difficult to guess since I'd begun our study of First Peter this morning. Doesn't that tell you a great deal? Tells you something about the way in which different parts of Scripture, which are all relevant to us, can be particularly relevant to some groups of people in some places at particular times in their lives. Would be fairly unusual, I think, if you were to ask evangelical Christians in this country what is your favorite letter. Some would say James, it's so practical, Romans, because I love theology. But First Peter, I can scarcely remember where First Peter comes in the New Testament. It's just, it's just tucked away there. And yet it is a tract for the times as we ourselves find in our Christian lives, that yes, we are allowed to reverence the Lord Jesus in our hearts, but we may not give overt expression to do that in every aspect of our lives. And as we've all seen, these various cases, some of them that have gone to the courts, about Christians giving overt expression to the fact that they belong to Jesus Christ and a company or even in some instances the state closing down through the law courts and saying, you may believe those things, but you may not practice those things in every area of your life. And as I said this morning, perhaps the area in which that is most true in our country today is the political arena where to profess yourself to be a believing Christian who trusts God's word is, I imagine, in many instances, to disqualify you from the possibility that you would be able to stand as a political candidate. And so, in our uber tolerant society, the one thing that is not tolerated is to say, and to give expression to the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he is the only way to the Father. That he who even on the evening of his passion asked his Father that there might be some other way was told by the God of heaven, there is no other name given to men under heaven by which we must be saved. And the more we openly profess that in our society, the more we will be marginalized. Many of us feel that our country is further down to go before it's brought to its knees to plead with God for light and for mercy. And so as we read through uh, 1 Peter here in church and privately at home, this really is, as I say, a tract for the times, a letter to those who are suffering. And interesting, a letter in which Peter says, you don't think there's anything unusual about that, do you? Don't count it as something strange when that happens. Now, here's an an interesting question. Um, Perhaps you know Christians in Iran. Perhaps you you know Christians in other parts of the world where uh, Christians are suffering open hostility and persecution, Uh, some of them in prison, others of them uh, suffering physical privation. Here's a a challenging question. Let's say, for argument, the person's name is John, and you're writing a letter to them. How does it begin? Dear John, or my dear John, or hello, John, or hi. But what's the next sentence? My next sentence I am so sorry to hear about what you're going through. Now, you can read 1 Peter from start to finish, from finish to start. You can start in the middle and go in either direction, and you'll not find these words flowing out of the Apostle Peter's pen. He simply does not have the mindset to say to these Christians who are suffering for the gospel, I'm so sorry this is happening. It's just terrible. I don't know what's coming to our world. So here is a a deeply countercultural illustration of how the Christian responds to the suffering of his fellow Christians. Because he begins not by lamenting the situation, although he's very realistic about it. He actually begins by saying two things, two supremely important things for Christians who are or will be facing persecution and suffering. He says, the first thing is this, I simply want to remind you who you are. Because in the face of opposition Especially when that opposition always seems to tower above you. Have you noticed that? You must have noticed that personally. You, you see that in the media. How do you deal with the opposition? You make, them, you make yourself as large as possible, and you talk them down as much as possible. And one of the easiest things in the world, if you're a Christian, is to feel how small you are, how insignificant you are but especially how big they are, how strong they are, how many of them there are. And the first thing Peter wants to say is, when you allow those people to become big, it's because you've forgotten who you are. And then the second thing he does, and uh, this simply by way of outline of these verses, the second thing he does in verses 3 through 12, and you'll notice he strikes this note right from the beginning of verse 3. He lifts their eyes from the privation of their personal situation to the blessings and privileges that have come to them through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this, I think, is enormously challenging to us. Perhaps it's because we ourselves as yet have not tasted the degree of opposition that the Apostle Peter himself apparently had already tasted. That our instinct, actually, when we, when we write to beleaguered Christians is not, once we've finished the first paragraph, to burst into praise and adoration and rejoicing in all that God has given to us in the gospel, but simply to go on saying, we're really sorry for what's happened. We hope they're feeling better. We hope these nasty people will go away, and isn't it terrible what's happening in the world? But at the end, God will surely triumph. No, Peter has this sense, the God who will triumph at the end is the God who is able to triumph in the present. And so he bursts into this extraordinary complex series of statements about the privileges of the gospel. And he he kind of throws them out. And then, as I say, almost like an onion, he says, oh, I I need to unpack that for you. And you of these sentences, maybe when we were reading the scriptures, you you kind of lost the place in one or two of these sentences, because Peter keeps on unpeeling the wonders of the gospel, and in the process of unpeeling the wonders of the gospel, what he's seeking to do is to unravel in the Christian soul a sense of what a privilege it is to be a child of God, to be a Christian believer, to have all these riches of grace in Jesus Christ. And so he begins by saying to these Christians, first of all, you need to know what it means to be a Christian. So his little three by five card handed out To these Christians in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. What is a Christian? What is a Christian? Well, you might write down, if you were a little cheeky, read the New Testament. A Christian is described from many different points of view. But look at the way Peter describes these Christians. And, of course, he's simply describing all Christians in what he says in verses 1 and 2. To God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Here's how we think about ourselves. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and sprinkling by His blood. Is it just because First Peter isn't the favorite letter of most of us who are Christians? Or is there something more to it than that? That my suspicion is that if I'd given out a three-by-five blank card, with the question, what is a Christian? I don't think I would have written that down. And Peter is exploring here for us, he's exploring dimensions of being a Christian that to him meant there would be an anchor for the soul of these believers that would not only strengthen them in days of persecution, but in a sense would give them a sense of enlargement that would make them realize that, yes, those who persecuted them seemed large and strong, but those who persecuted them had no idea whom they were really persecuting. The dignity that belonged to them. The privileges that were theirs. The honors that God had heaped upon them. It's maybe an unfortunate thing uh, at this particular period in our time that what he focuses on is their election. <laughs> I've always thought that uh, you can go into two different kinds of parties and cause controversy immediately by using just one word. Sure, if you'd gone into almost anywhere in Scotland in the last couple of weeks and said the word election, there would have been a raising of the temperature in the atmosphere. Some of the people in the room would be having palpitations, and it probably would have been the easiest way in Scotland, it may still be the easiest way in Scotland, To cause controversy. And sadly, I say sadly because it seems to be the last thing in Peter's mind, the same can be true of a group of Christians. You throw the word election into the conversation, boom, bang! Even to the point where I've heard some Christians say in those contexts, well, I don't believe in election who in the next sentence will tell you they believe every sentence in the Bible. So we need to get beyond those instinctive responses to listen to what Peter is saying. Because what he's saying here, if you're a Christian at all, Peter is saying this is true of you. And if I can put it this way rather naughtily, it's not your choice whether it's true of you or not. This is what is true of you. And you notice what he says here. Uh, different versions of the New Testament translate what Peter says in different ways. But he sees himself addressing these Christians in what we nowadays think of as modern-day Turkey, probably Christians who scarcely ever met together. And he says, there are three things that are true of you in the first instance. The first is that you are elect. The second is that you are strangers. And the third is more literally that you belong to the dispersion. Let's think about those last two ideas first. He says they are strangers of the dispersion. They are exiles living in these different places. And he's giving us an indication of precisely what the Apostle Paul says, you remember, to the Philippians. He uses this marvelous idea that the people in Philippi belong to a Roman colony. But their real citizenship is not Roman citizenship. Their real citizenship is in heaven. And Peter is using the same kind of picture here. He is saying wherever you live, wherever your natural citizenship is you are actually a stranger in that place. You are an alien resident in the city or country or state in which you live. You do not ultimately belong there. You ultimately belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, He says as much Uh, later on, you remember, when he describes the Christians in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. And in that simple statement, he provides for us a, a, a wonderfully liberating truth. He enables us to see ourselves, as it were, through the right end of the telescope. To understand that if we are Christ's, then our ultimate citizenship is not here on earth, but with Christ in heaven. That our ultimate lordship and loyalty, therefore, is with Christ and not with anything in this world. And one of the marvelous things that that immediately does for us is it produces in us a profound sense of concern for the world in which we live and at the same time a marvelous detachment from anything that there is in the world. Actually, Paul does the same thing, doesn't he? Remember how he says, isn't it, in First Corinthians 7, He says, no matter what it is you have, you need to be able to learn to live as though you did not have it. Remember when he says he can do all things in Christ? He doesn't mean that he can fly in the air. What he means in the context of those words in Philippians chapter 4 is in Christ, he is able to handle having plenty And in Christ, he is able to handle having nothing. Because he has learned, as it were, to fill his arms with Jesus Christ, he has learned a certain detachment from anything he possesses in this world and anything that happens to him during his pilgrimage in this world. His life is not his own. We have been bought with a a price. We belong to Jesus Christ. We may be citizens of the United Kingdom, as most of us are. But if we are here tonight and Christians and citizens of another nation, then each of us belongs with a deeper loyalty and also with a deeper bond to our citizenship, which is to be found in Jesus Christ. And so Peter is helping these Christians right from the beginning, and this will occur and reoccur during his letter. He's helping us to understand that if we don't ultimately belong here, there will come times when we will be treated as though you don't belong here. And we shouldn't think that's strange because we don't ultimately belong here. And then he describes them as belonging to the diaspora. Now, of course, that's an idea that emerges from... uh, what happened to the Jewish people in the exile in Babylon and then the way under God's judgment, they were dispersed among the nations. But it's come into fairly common use. I mean, we, we speak about the Scottish diaspora. Um, those of us who have lived in the United States or are from the United States almost of the impression that half of the people we've ever met in the United States have told us that they are Scottish, meaning somewhere along the line they are ancestors made the voyage across the Atlantic, and they were all part of the Scottish Diaspora. They still claim to be Scottish, but they have been spread, as it were, all over the world. And if they were all to come back, our little island would sink, wouldn't it? And uh, Peter is saying, this is how you're to think about yourself. What a marvelous thing, actually, it is to experience this as God brings his people from other parts of the world to our part of the world, or as some of us go from this part of the world to other parts of the world, and we realize as we have contact, we go to churches, we meet Christians, we may not be able to speak their language, we can scarcely participate in the worship, but we have this deep sense that we belong ultimately to the same nation. We are God's people, but we are spread. And sometimes it seems we are spread very thin. And later on, Peter will say, one of the things that happens when you're spread very thin is that when there is persecution, you feel as though you're the only people in the world. And he says to them, you need to remember that you actually belong to the biggest family there has ever, ever been. I think that's actually hugely important for us today in the Western world, that we ought not to be so myopic as to think that the gospel is sinking into the sea because of what we observe in the Western world when you go to other parts of the world and there is an explosion of faith in Jesus Christ, you need to remember uh, that you, you are not a marginalized, tiny minority, a mere individual swimming against the tide, but you belong to a family that stretches back down through history and stretches geographically from one part of the globe to another, from east to west and north to south. And you have brothers and sisters and spiritual fathers and mothers and children all over the planet and multitudes of them in glory. And we belong to Jesus Christ. We belong to one another. A multitude that no man can number. And more and more, as our society turns away from the heritage of the gospel, what do we discover? We were praying about it this evening that our young children as they go to school and as they go through high school, as things now progress, may be the only one among their group of friends who live together with their birth mother and their natural father, and they don't know what family is. Sometimes that is why they are so angry when they see the Christian family, because it's the anger of jealousy, That nothing they can do, nothing they have been given, nothing they can find, nothing they can say, can give them this. Which, my friends, is why the quality of our Christian fellowship is so important. That people see that we have the mind of Christ, that we care and love for each other, that we honor one another, we have affection. There is grace In our relationships with one another and in our speech to one another, because they're not going to find that anywhere else, except among the people of God. But then there is the term that actually dominates these first two verses. What Peter is saying is I'm writing to you as God's elect. And then he further describes them as strangers in the world, dispersed throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And then as you'll see if you're using the New International Version, he has to pick up that word elect from verse 1 and use it again in verse 2 because what he's wanting to say to these Christians who belong to this worldwide, history-long family of God, he wants to say to them now, let your mind settle down on this, that all the privileges you have as a Christian are rooted in this simple privilege that you have been chosen You have been elected by God. What's so interesting is he he doesn't expect that statement to cause a blink of controversy. He doesn't expect that these Christians will kind of, something will be riled within them to uh, argue or complain. Because he understands that At the end of the day, there is a cosmos only because of the election of God. We did not choose that there should be a creation. There is the story of redemption only because there is the election of God. And supremely, there is Jesus Christ only because of the election of God. None of these things was my choice. It was not possible for me to choose that I would exist. It isn't possible for me to choose that Jesus Christ would come and die on the cross for me. And Peter is going one step further by saying we need to understand that such is our spiritual condition. That unless God had come and chosen us for himself, it is indubitably true that we would never have been Christians. In a sense, simple logic would teach you that, wouldn't it? And the experience of many of us who would have to say, he loved me before I loved him. He chose me before I ever knew him. And as Peter works this out, you'll notice that he says three things. And interestingly, the three things he says about this election dissolve some of the problems some Christians have about this election. The first statement he makes about it is this. You are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, when the New Testament uses this term foreknowledge, it means, without exception, foreknown, foreloved, and foreordained. If I can put it this way, when the New Testament speaks about foreknowledge... It has reference to people and not to what people do. And it carries the freight or weight that is characteristic of the way in which the Bible often uses the language of knowledge. It carries the notion of love. What the Apostle Peter is saying is, that we are Christians because of the forelove of God the Father for us and his desire to adopt us into his family. Of course, I know there are Christians who will say, God's choice is based on his factual foreknowledge that I would choose him But there's a huge philosophical and logical problem in saying that. And it's quite simply this. How does he know I would do it? How does he know I would do it before I did it? He can't know that I would do it before I actually did it unless what I did in coming to faith in Jesus Christ was something he knew because it was something he planned. And that, of course, is what the Scriptures teach us from from the beginning to the end. That our faith in Jesus Christ is not based, first of all, on our decision. But it's rooted, first of all, in God's amazing love. Remember how Paul puts it, speaking about what has happened in the past. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. That's not the result of my choice. That's the result of his choice. And what Peter wants us to grasp is that if we are Christians at all, that reality stretches beyond time, into the purposes and the amazing, gracious love of the heavenly Father to set His love upon us and draw us to Himself. But then he adds something else. He says, we're not only foreknown according to the purposes of the Father, But we are, in the second place, in the fruition of God's election, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now, when Christians use the word sanctification, they usually speak about an ongoing process. When the New Testament uses the language of sanctification, it tends not to be speaking about an ongoing process, but a decisive act that takes place at the very beginning of our Christian lives it's almost always, the language of sanctify is almost always used in the past tense in the New Testament. You have been sanctified. What does that mean? It means that you have been taken from your natural life and reserved for the life of God. It means that you have been transferred out of one dominion into another dominion by a decisive act of God the Holy Spirit. This is the language he uses here. You have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of God the Holy Spirit. You know how it's sometimes said, you know, if God really elects people, then you, you just live any way you want to live. And if you're one of the elect, you're one of the elect. But uh, Peter's teaching the reverse here, isn't he? He's teaching if God chooses you, then God also by his Spirit puts his hand on you, and he transfers you into his kingdom. That, of course, in a sense, is part of the New Testament's answer to the, the kind of things people sometimes say about election, but what about my free will? If God elects, what about my free will? And uh, what Peter is really saying is, well, what about your free will? What does the New Testament tell you about your free will? What the New Testament tells you about your free will is left to your free will. In a million years, you would never come to faith in Jesus Christ. If I'd come to you five years before you became a Christian, perhaps if you're conscious that you went through a real transition and you said to me, I will come to faith in Jesus Christ by my own free will. And I had said to you, well, you know, I'm worried about your spiritual condition, so just come to him for five minutes by your own free will. Would you have been able to do it? Did you want to do it? And you see, this is the New Testament's position left to our own free will, what does the New Testament teach us? It teaches us that we are fast bound in sin and nature's night, as Wesley put it. That we are incapable of coming to Christ because we don't want to come to Christ. In that sense, my friends, there's no such thing as a will that is free From the person who exercises it. You understand that? You're not a person who, somewhere or another, has a will. You're a willing person. And apart from the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. As a willing person, you are never going to will to come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's why Jesus himself says, nobody comes to me unless the Father draws him. And what he's saying is, you know, you think about yourself in this world, you may be facing great pressure, but remember this, the Father has chosen you to be his child. The very New Testament language of adoption hints at that, doesn't it? Do you know any adopted child who chose his or her own own father? No, it works the other way around, doesn't it? That's what he's saying. This is the amazing thing. I was by nature a child of wrath, and he chose me to be his child. Before you explore the mysteries of election, you need to be anchored in the realities of election. Or all it will be to you is the thing it never seems to be in the New Testament, and that is a cause of controversy and difficulty. And you'll never drink from the fountain of God's grace that it expresses. And then, because in a sense his choice needs to function in your life, he sends the Holy Spirit and he pursues you, doesn't he? And he brings you to to himself. And you're drawn to Christ. You know, the, the proof positive of all this is you go to a prayer meeting, or you pray with another individual, or you pray yourself for somebody you know who is not a Christian. Have you ever prayed this way? Father, I really don't know what to say, Because I can't say to you, break into their free will, because I don't believe you do that kind of thing. And of their free will, they don't seem to want to have anything to do with you. And so, Father, I'm really wondering whether it's right for me to pray about them. Because I'm praying for them something they don't want for themselves, by their own free will. No, we're usually so much better on our knees, aren't we? say, God, break into their lives. God, if need be, bring them affliction. God, break them down. God, wrestle them to the ground. But God, bring them to yourself. So he's saying, this is our privilege. This has actually happened to us. Can I I take it in? This has happened to me that God has chosen me to be his child. And then he's not only chosen me to be his child, but he's brought me home into his family by the power of his Holy Spirit. And then he says, and uh, you've been chosen for something else. He says, you've been chosen for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Now, the first part of that statement's fairly clear, isn't it? Um, How how could anyone who had ever read the New Testament think that when God chooses you, it doesn't matter how you live? When it's there in black and white, you would think all you need to do is to be able to read and understand the English language. To understand that when God chooses you and sets you apart, it's in order that you may acknowledge the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I mean, what an encouragement this is when people make you small because of your obedience to Christ. And you're able to think, but this obedience to Christ is anchored in the love of the Father for me and in the work of the Spirit in me. This is what I'm for. I'm for obedience to Jesus Christ. But what is this sprinkling with his blood? Well, as uh, I'm sure you, you probably know, it's, it's an Old Testament picture. You remember when uh, Moses, on behalf of the people, entered into the new covenant with God at Mount Sinai, he made a sacrifice, and the blood of the sacrifice was put into a bowl, and some of that blood was sprinkled over the altar, which was really the symbol of the presence and grace of God to his people. Do you remember what he did with the rest of the blood? He he threw it over all the people. It was a symbolic way of saying, you are bound to the Lord in such a way that He has staked His own existence on having you as His. And because you have responded to Him, you you stake your whole existence on having Him as His. As yours. It's picture language for saying that the fruition of God's sovereign purposes in our lives is that we should be bound together in a, in a kind of marriage covenant with the Lord Jesus Christ in which God says, as a, a minister would say, in which God says to His Son who has shed His blood for us, Will you have this woman to be your lawful wedded wife, and to us will you have this man to be your lawful wedded husband, to live together for my glory, because that's why I've chosen you. I've chosen you that all these things should be true. And when these be- things begin to dawn on us, we we understand. Well, of course, it's true we sing about it so often and we pray about it so often that we are only Christ's because the Father has chosen us, because the Spirit has worked in us, and because we've given ourselves in response in a covenant bond with our glorious Savior. And before he says anything else, He says, you need to understand Christian living in the second half of the first century or in the first half of the 21st century. When things get tough, these things are still true. And then as we close, just notice in passing something that isn't actually here, just in passing. Do you notice what Peter is saying here? He's saying, Christian. If you're a Christian, it has taken the personal commitment of all three members of the blessed Trinity to bring you into the family of God, the love of the Father, the work of the Spirit, the bond of the Son. And so, when you find yourself facing strong men and women who want to intimidate you and say to you, do you not know who we are? We can crush you. We are able to say, come on then, because if you try to do, you are going to be taking on none other than God the Holy Trinity, and you cannot possibly defeat them. And therefore, you cannot ultimately bring me down. And he's hardly opened the suitcase. So there's more to come. Our Father, it's so hard for us in our self-sufficiency and self-centeredness to be able to have our minds turned outside in and inside out to grasp what in our deepest instincts we know to be true, that we have done nothing to contribute to our salvation. Indeed, everything that we are by nature and have done by nature has been against your salvation and we know, Lord, that we are, we are surrounded day and daily by people who are exactly where we were. They do not want Christ. Their wills are not free to choose Christ because they detest Christ. And we thank you that there are those who have pleaded with you for us, that you would break down that detestation, that you would melt our hard hearts, that you would show your grace to us. And we come to you to pray that you would open the eyes of our understanding and in this instance also open our hearts that are, are so often so closed to your sovereignty except when we choose to think it would be helpful for us. And find ourselves humbled in the knowledge that you chose us before we chose you. That we would never have chosen you as indeed we have by faith unless your spirit had renewed our wills and given us a desire for Jesus Christ. And we would not be what we are by your grace unless Jesus Christ had bound us to himself by his shed blood. And we pray as we live through the rest of this week that we may therefore know that although we are strangers scattered throughout the world, nevertheless, we have a God who has chosen us because you are a father who wants to adopt us, a God who has set us apart because Your Spirit has worked in our hearts and a Savior devoted to us because you have brought us into covenant fellowship with Him. And so especially, Lord, when we feel ourselves to be weak and bruised and opposed and and in our hearts deeply cowardly, we pray that we will remember your Word and remember who we are And know that we are anchored in eternity and that nothing can ever shake us so long as we are yours. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.